It's happened, friends. It has finally arrived that we're in the season now where Christmas songs are littering every radio station on the dial. Now, some of them, some of them have chosen to just sort of inject them every 10 or 15 minutes, but they are there nonetheless. And there's a really, really catchy Christmas tune that sings this. It's the most wonderful time. Yeah, but is it? I mean, I mean, honestly, is it? I mean, how, how do we sing that it's the most wonderful time of the year as this week we remembered another deadly school shooting in Oxford? How, how do we sing it's the most wonderful time of the year when the bottom has fallen out of 401ks and people's retirements? How, how, do we, how do we sing it's the most wonderful time of the year when inflation is pressing against families who are living paycheck to paycheck? I mean, is it, is it actually the most wonderful time of the year? Or, or have we just purchased enough snow globes? and tinsel, and drink enough wassail, that all the, all the hurt and the brokenness and the pain and the heartache that we're experiencing has been wrapped up with a nice little bow on top. Is it the most wonderful season of the year? For a season that's supposed to be full of hope and peace and joy and love, it is often filled with hopelessness and anxiousness and melancholy and hateful words and actions. But as Pastor Adam so lovingly reminded us last week, that it's not actually our responsibility for manufacturing hope, for coming up with our own peace or joy or love. Right, as, as disciples, as people who are rooted in Christ, we, we don't hope for something. We have hope in someone. The one who, as Isaiah is saying, is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and who is a prince of peace. And that same one will rule on David's throne, both with justice and righteousness, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. I mean, this is why we light candles on an Advent wreath, not as just some, some religious rite or ritual, but actually as a way to remind us of the light of the world, whose very presence dispels darkness, who conquers enemies and provides hope and peace and joy and love. The lighting of an advent calendar or advent candles, right? It's an encouragement for longing, for longing, for longing of Christ who comes. The one who, who is a reminder of hope. Friends, if the, if the first candle is about hope, then the, the second candle is about peace. But as Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but I do not give to you as the world gives. Now do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now friends, in order to get at this peace that Jesus brings, uh, today we're gonna take a look at his somewhat awkward cousin, 
uh, John. So uh, I'd love for you to grab a Bible and come with me to the Gospel of John, not the same John, by the way, but, but the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We're going to begin actually at verse 19 before the reading that Tom had just moments ago. So grab a Bible, paper, digital, doesn't matter, and John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, as you, as you find that spot, just a quick backstory, right? John, uh, born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, cousin to Jesus, he has been out in the wilderness preaching a prophetic word of repentance. You see, John, John saw a disconnect between the way of God and the way in which the people of God were living. And so, with boldness, and truly, truly, it takes a very bold man to preach in a loincloth made of camel hair. And so, with all, with all boldness, John preaches repentance, a, a, a returning to God and his way. And as a sign of that repentance, then, people were ushered into the waters of the Jordan River, a symbolic washing of one's errant ways and, and a clean start. So, so let me pause just long enough for those of us here in the Christian church who believe baptism really is just kind of this, this Christian thing. I, I want to say that baptism, a baptism was happening a long time before Jesus rolled around, but that baptism, that baptism was the same as John. It was symbolic in its nature. It was a, a symbol of this new life. But what caught the attention of the Jewish leadership here in John's gospel, it was not only that John was baptizing, but it was coupled not only with his audacious appearance, kind of hearkening back to prophets of old, but his bold preaching of repentance. And so here in, in John chapter one, the leadership comes out to see John. And we're going to pick up the conversation here uh, in verse 19. Here's what it says. It says, now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He, that is John, did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So friends, it's clear, it's just clear from John's response that the leadership wondered they wondered if, in fact, John was the Messiah, the one who, as we heard from Isaiah sing last time, dawning light and who dispels the darkness and who rules on David's throne. John, are you it? Now, John can't be any more clear. He simply says, I am not. But the leadership, right, the leadership needs an answer before they return to Jerusalem and those who have sent them. And so they go on. They ask him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Okay, but are you the prophet? And again, John says, no, I'm not. Finally, like, well, okay, okay. then who are you? Like, give us an answer so that we can take it back to those who sent us. What is it you actually say about yourself? Now, John's response, John's response is basically this. He basically says, listen, I'm the appetizer to the main course. 
right? I'm the foreword to the great story. Like, I'm the ball drop before the New Year's celebration, right? Here's what I think John is saying. He's basically saying, I'm a poor substitute for the real thing. I'm a poor substitute for what's coming. There is a, there is a marked difference between me and the one whose sandals I am not worthy to unstrap. Now, if we go to Mark's gospel, John will say there, listen, I baptize with water, but the one, the one who I'm not worthy even to take his sandals off, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, John is saying there is a distinct difference between himself and the Messiah, between John and Jesus. Now, church, in a similar way, there is a distinct difference between the peace that the world offers and the peace that Jesus is and he provides. Now, there are no doubt a myriad of methods that the world offers to you and me by which we can get peace. And two of the most prominent, the first, the first is distance. Like, we believe that if, if we can just get space, right, physical space, mental space, emotional space, if we can just get space between that which creates anxiousness in us or creates hurt or grief or pain, if we can just get distance, then we'll have peace, I was counseling a couple a number of years ago whose marriage was unraveling faster than they could mend it. And in one of our conversations, it was suggested by one of the spouses that what they really needed was space. They needed time apart, a specific amount of time to have distance between them. And, and both spouses seemed really excited for what they thought would bring peace. But friends, months later, as we sat down again, they were just as broken and just as frustrated as before they left. Because there was something deep in their hearts that distance couldn't fix. In fact, that space only led them into deeper frustration and the grief that they were experiencing. Now, time and space aren't inherently a bad thing. And, and oftentimes, that, that distance or that space provides clarity for the steps we need to take in order to find peace. But space and distance as escapism is a poor substitute for the real thing. So, so if space and distance is really kind of the first method, I think the second one that the world offers is anesthesia. Now, in the first church that Aaron and I served, we had an anesthesiologist who worked at the Texas Heart Institute. And friends, it was so intriguing to talk to him about anesthesia, which, can, can I just say, is both a beautiful and a frightening thing. Right, to be clear, someone can give you drugs to literally knock you out and make sure that you feel nothing. All in a little syringe they push into your body. Like, it's weird, right? Like they put you into a nap and they take parts out of you and you don't feel it. Like that's, 
That's odd. Can we, can we just agree? But it's also beautiful. Because anesthesia numbs us to that pain. And were it not for that anesthesia when they took all the parts out of you, like that would hurt. So it is both frightening and beautiful. Anesthesia is just a numbing agent so that, so that we don't feel pain. And friends, we all have an anesthesia of choice when we deal with, a, with our own hurt and brokenness and pain and heartache and anxiousness. You know, I was incredibly blessed to work as a chaplain for our local fire department while we were living on the east side. And for the most part, for the most part, being the chaplain at the firehouse uh, was really just hanging out and doing my best to stomach the coffee that had been on a warming plate for the better part of 24 hours. Uh, but, when, but when your 24-hour shift, right, is spent making almost as many runs, you, you simply drink whatever coffee they put into your mug. And on a particular Saturday, I got a call from a shift captain who, who wanted me to come in and to talk to one of his firefighters about a particularly hard call they had made the day before where a young girl had died en route to the hospital. Now make, make no mistake, right? First responders see atrocities that most people should never be witness to. And a lot of those atrocities are etched into their minds until they see Jesus. Now for the most part, at least with the firemen that I worked with, they were either wired to get past it or they had coping mechanisms to help them deal with the emotional stress of the work. But this particular run had done something quite different. And this fireman had gone home in order to drink himself into an oblivion. Now for him, it was a fifth of Jack, and he was using it to numb out to his own pain. It was the anesthesia of his choice. Now the funny thing is, when that anesthesia wore off, the pain, the pain was still there. You see, his numbing agent of choice didn't bring peace, not real peace. It's a poor substitute for the real thing. Now, your, your numbing agent might not be a fifth of Jack, but it might be shopping, or Twitter trolling, or porn, or gambling, or drugs, or the mindless entertainment of the 24-7 news cycle. It, it might be food, it might be overeating, it might be exercising. Uh, whatever it is, it is a poor substitute for real peace. And so if these are the methods by which the world wants to give us peace, to get a hold of the real thing, we have to get back to John's gospel. So let's look at verse 29. 29 says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're gonna come back to that phrase in just a minute because it's super important. But keep going. He says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. In this moment, John is pointing to Jesus and saying, that man, 
That one right there, that's the real deal. I'm a poor substitute, but that one, that one right there, this is as real as it gets. He's the real thing. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John says. This phrase, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is significant. So in the Old Testament, God had set up a a series of religious rites that in their doing would would curb God's judgment, granting peace to God's people until the following year when they had to do it again. And while these animal sacrifices curbed God's judgment, it never satisfied God's judgment. And so year after year after year, Israel's priests would offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. But the writer to the Hebrews says, the law, listen, the law is only a shadow of the good things. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament are a poor substitute for the real thing. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. They are not the reality themselves. And for this reason, the writer says, it can never by sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near in worship. It is impossible, the writer says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. If I could say crassly what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, he's saying, listen, the endless sacrifice of animals is a poor substitute for real peace. We need, friends, we need the real deal. And so when John says, behold, the Lamb of God, this Jesus, he's saying, that man, he's the real deal. When John says that we should pay attention, right, Jesus is the one who brings not a, not a temporary peace like distance or anesthesia, but a, but a lasting peace. Again, the writer to the Hebrews says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ one time for all time. And so day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Jesus has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. You see, the peace that Jesus brings is different than the peace that the world offers. Jesus is not one to stand at a distance. He he doesn't put space between himself and his people. He doesn't wait for them to sort out their lives or to get rid of their sin or to heal their brokenness. He doesn't put space between him and the people he loves. In fact, he closes the distance. He comes to be with us. And in moments here to follow, you and I will take bread and wine. Jesus with us there in bread and wine together. And the peace that Jesus brings is different than the world. It's not an anesthesia which wears off. He, he doesn't avoid pain or try to numb out pain. He endures pain in his feet, in his hands, in his brow, in his side. Every agonizing breath, every labored word so that you and I 
can have peace, an everlasting peace, even in the midst of our heartache and pain and trouble. See, church, our our peace is found in the death of Christ where God's judgment is satisfied forever. And our peace is found in the resurrection of Christ, whose, whose resurrection is a promise of our own, a resurrection to no more pain and no more hurt and no more heartache and no more brokenness, but a resurrection only to the things of hope and love and joy and peace. Peace is found in the ascension of Christ, where Christ as king now rules in power, thwarting our enemies and saying to the evil one, no, no, that one is mine. She is my daughter, and he is my son. This, friends, is the peace that Jesus gives. When we light this second candle on the Advent wreath, it's to remind us of peace, true peace, everlasting peace, to remind us of the prince of peace, the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, friends, in this Advent season, we wait in eager anticipation for the coming of the King and for the advent of peace. You know, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is the most wonderful season of all. Not because of tinsel or twinkling lights and spiced wine, but because it's a season that points us to the peace we so desperately long for. That this season points us to Jesus. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. And so now may that peace of God, which surpasses all of our understanding, may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.